but you have to take a step back and say, I'm not going to have this anymore. So what am I going to do for me so I can move forward and be the guy or gal that I want to be? Welcome back to the show, everybody. In this week's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Don McAllister, a retired command sergeant major who deployed five times to Iraq and Afghanistan with the Army. Don shares about his lengthy military career, his experiences in combat overseas, incredible stories surrounding his love for metal music, and where his life has taken him since. This is an awesome episode with Don. We hope you all enjoy. Also, just a quick update. We will be missing next week's episode as it is our official a book launch of the 20-year war. We have a lot of news media press that we're going to be doing next week, and we have the official launch on September 11th at the National Veterans Memorial and Museum in Columbus, Ohio. So stay tuned for that. We'll share more news, and we will get back to our schedule of episodes after next week. Thank you, guys. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Hey, Don, how are you? Doing good. How about you guys? We're doing awesome. It's yeah. uh, awesome to have you on the show. I, I'm trying to think back to the exact time frame that you and I met up, and I want to say, was that March? Was it yeah, February or March? Was, I think it was February or March out in Raleigh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So for people listening, obviously, we met up with Don and photographed and interviewed him and his story. And he's one of the veterans featured in the 20 year war photo book, which I believe you just received, didn't you? Yep. I got it right here. Oh, that's awesome. Nice. Yeah, well, awesome, hopefully you're man. enjoying it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's got some, uh, some really good stories, man. Like, uh, it's awesome because a lot of, a lot of these veterans, you know, don't get to even tell a little bit of their life to, you know, people outside the military. So it's, I think it's pretty awesome what you guys are doing with that. So. Yeah. Well, no, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. And we're just honored that uh, you shared your story with us because I, I think you've got, you know, obviously a lengthy military career and quite the story of of showing and shaping the 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 typical narrative of what a veteran is and instead kind of dispelling a lot of the myths because I, I think you are clearly your own person. Mm hmm. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not cut and dry of, you know, what a what a veteran should be or can be. Yeah, absolutely. I think Dom might be like the only like metal rocker yeah. kind of guy we have in the book. Yeah, I'm a <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm a metal fan. You know, people are comic book nerds and all that crap. I'm a uh, I'm a heavy metal nerd, man. So that's cool. That's I definitely awesome. want to get into that in this episode and talk more about it. Um. So you know. Obviously, with uh, a, a lot of things happening, um, a lot of recent events, we were touching on it just briefly. You know, you said, you know, you're you're doing fine, all things considered. But I know it's been a little chaotic for you. Um, you know, what's what's been going on with everything in Afghanistan? Like, how have you been processing it or have you been reaching out to people? Have people been reaching out to you? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, it's tough, I think, for all of us who are over there, especially those of us who have a lot of time over there. Um, I've had a lot of guys reach out to me and ask me if it was worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, cause yeah. they look up to me and, you know, they, you know, they were, they, I guess, respect my opinions and all. And, um, you know, what I've tried to get across to all these kids, I say kids, cause you know, I'm the old dude in the army. So that's a habit. But, uh, but what I try to get across to everybody, man, is, um, you know, we all went over there. We all do what we were asked to do. We all stepped up 
you know, when, when other people didn't. And at the end of the day, if we know that we did what we were supposed to do, then the only thing we can do now is just, uh, you know, take care of each other and know that we did our part. And, you know, like I used to tell guys, uh, you know, in the military, they teach you, you know, the youngest private needs to know the, uh, know the mission and all that stuff. Right. I'm like, yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. But you know what the, you know what the young private really needs to know what his job is. So if he's a mm -hmm. salt hunter, he needs to know how to shoot a saw. If he's a rifleman, he needs to know how to be the best rifleman there is because if he does his job, then the mission that he's a part of gets accomplished. And, mm -hmm. um, and I would tell you, man, I've been, it, it hurts because of the way it all happened. Um, you know, from a, from a senior leader's perspective, and I won't do the, you know, the armchair quarterback thing. I can just tell you for me, what hurt me was not that we pulled out of Afghanistan or any of that stuff. It was how we did it. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, and we didn't, you know, we, the fighting force did everything that we were asked to do and then some. And mm -hmm. I think most of us, especially guys, as we became senior, we knew that there was no end in sight to Afghanistan. And eventually we we're going to pull out. And then, you know, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I think it's it's going to hit us again at some point. And maybe, yeah. you know, like my son-in-law, you know, he's in the military right now. You know, like it's going to it's going to hit again. And. And what, what, what hurts about it is the fact that, you know, like a guy like me, right? So, for example, the first time I went to Afghanistan, I was a first sergeant. All my I, Iraq from squad leader on up. Um, and, you know, as a first sergeant, you know, you're in charge of 100 and some odd paratroopers. You kind of have the blinders off. So you, you understand that what we're going to do over there is not about the strategic mission or none of that crap. It's to mm -hmm. find bad guys, find terrorists, take them out, um, do our job and get everybody back home and prepare for the next one a year later, you know, um, and for, you know, the way I, the way I, I look at it and I've talked to a lot of guys since this has been going on is like, you know, like, for example, if I'm a private and it's my first deployment in Afghanistan, or I only did one deployment. Right. And then I, I seen like for me, my second deployment to Afghanistan was hell. Um, for those guys to go through that and to see dudes blown to bits left and right and everything, and then and then see all this and hear people on social media and all this stuff saying we failed, we failed, hmm. we, did, we didn't fail shit. Excuse my language. You know, we did our part. We did our job. Um, our leaders failed, and hmm. uh, and. I would also say this about Afghanistan, you know, if any of the the younger guys are listening or gals, you know, um, even me, I was a command sergeant major. My last time in Afghanistan, I was a sergeant major in uh, RC East. And if you would have asked me anything about our strategic policy or anything like that, I had no clue because at the end of the day, I really didn't care because mm -hmm. all I cared about was making sure our troops were trained that we were going over to do a job, we were taking out the threat or training who we had to, and then we were coming home. Yeah. Um, and and when you when you see all these 
people on there talking strategy and talking all this stuff when their span of control was maybe like six guys or 16 guys. It's like, dude, you, sh you know, for me, my advice to you is, especially if you're like an influencer or something, these kids look up to you, let them know that they did what they were supposed to do. Don't get into all the other BS, man, because, you know, talking about it the way a lot of people are doing on online and on doing the divisiveness and all that stuff. It's like, dude, nothing's going to change from that. The mm -hmm. only thing it's going to do is make the kids. And I say kids, I mean, hell, they're all, you know, thirties and crap, but make them think that, you know, my buddy lost his right arm for nothing, you know, when at the end of the day, none of us during this war joined the military um, to like truthfully fight for our government. We joined because we felt like we needed to serve and we saw men and women over there getting messed up and we wanted to be a part of the the force that brings them home, if that makes sense mm -hmm. to you guys. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of my take on it, man. I don't get into the, you know, the politics of it and all that stuff because we can... <laughs> We can talk that all day long. The only thing I would say about it, like I said, man, is our leadership from the top down failed mm -hmm. um, this pullout, the plan. Yep. But our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, they freaking, they did their job and then some, and they got nothing, nothing to uh, regret because at the end of the day, they kept me safe. They kept my family safe. They kept you guys safe for the last 20 years. And, yep. and that's what it was about. So, yeah, yeah, that's no, a really, I think, interesting way of looking at it. I mean, and obviously, like you said, this whole episode's not to go into recent events. They've been shared enough. Everybody's heard more about it, but it's interesting to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm glad <clears throat> I'm glad you've had the same sort of response to it as well, especially people that have reached out to me individually. And what's interesting, you know, especially the veterans like well, what do you think about it? Was it all worth it? All those types of questions that usually crop up and it's like, yeah, you did your job. Don't worry about what has happened years later. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have changed anything that happened these past couple of weeks. There's nothing more you could have done that would have changed the outcome with the plan that was laid mm -hmm. for this pullout. There's nothing individually we could have done. But the especially the civilians that I've been talking to, like family members, things like that, that are just trying to get an understanding of like why this all happened. It's such a difficult thing to explain to them, because to your point, you know, we have our individual perspectives for the people who are fighting on the ground. There's going to be the talking heads, the news folks, the politicians, yep. everything mm -hmm. that are going to talk about this big picture and ideals of, you know, what happened in the region and things like that. And I can talk on that a little bit, but honestly, every time I circle back to you just won't really understand it unless you were there. Mm. Like it really doesn't impact you the same way unless you were there. And that's just people need to be OK with that being the answer. Like there's always people trying to overanalyze and assess and understand exactly, you know, why one person did one thing or another. It doesn't matter. It What matters is we did our jobs. We excelled at our jobs. We got people back as much as we could. And we were there regardless, even if we uh, had people in our platoon or in our company or in our battalion that were injured or killed, we were there for them. doesn't matter. But I, I will say this before we move on. Don, from your perspective, it's pretty incredible, though, to see how many veterans got together mm -hmm. to like jump into going back over there and pulling these people out like way faster than what our government could do. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that was. Uh, 
you know, for me being a sergeant major, looking at that, I respect the hell out of the guys for doing it. But if I'd have been the guy on the ground trying to handle it, I would have been so pissed off at him, you know, mm-hmm. because ultimately that just makes more work for me. But yep. at the same time, what were we doing to get those people out? You know, mm-hmm. and I say we as, as the United States. Um, now, and I will say this just from because I'm a I'm a combat soldier, man. Like my whole adult life, I spent fighting. And mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I never once fought in Afghanistan for the people of Afghanistan. And people have asked me that. And I tell them, no, that was never in my mission statement. I went to Afghanistan to take out pockets of terrorism to keep them from coming over here. Yeah. And I went to Iraq. Our mission was to liberate Iraq from a tyrannical government and, and, you know, try to give them free elections and all that stuff, which ultimately we started doing in Afghanistan. But at the end of the day, you know, I feel for the people over there. I truly do. But, you know, I'm not going to lie to anybody and say that I fought for the people of Afghanistan because I didn't, I fought for my guys and the soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, when you, when you look at all this stuff, like guys like me, you're going to have a different perspective than like, for example, a civil affairs guy or a special forces mm-hmm. guy, you know, because to me, when the, when we got teamed up with a and a or whoever, those guys were just a thorn in my side and in the way, you know, but then you have other elements that literally became friends and, you know, with all these guys and, and I totally get it, man. I just, I just would tell you, you know, um, I'm glad those guys did what they did. You know, I, I, I think, I think they did what was right, but I also think that it could have been really bad um, hmm. from a senior leader's perspective and seeing, because I mean, we got lucky on that one, to tell you the truth, mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, from just, just from a guy who's been up there with the blinders off and kind of sees it. Um, but, but man, you know, the way, the way things are today, you know, I don't fault anybody for stepping up and trying to make something happen because, you know, there's so many people that are, uh, for lack of a better term, keyboard warriors and all that stuff, but they would never, <laughs> yeah. ever, they would never grab, they would never grab their freaking sack and get out there and do what those guys did. And, uh, and to tell you the truth, it would have felt good to be over there and doing what they're doing, you know? I'm just thinking of it from a a senior leader's perspective, like troop commander on the ground, it would have made more work for me because I had to figure out how to, how to vet all these guys too, and figure out all this stuff. So that's a lot, man. It's definitely a lot of work. Like you saw how many people were getting sent through and then having to be sent back out because they didn't have the right forms or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, it, it's the nature of the beast, but yeah, I, I will say this. I was in Montana last weekend uh, when the uh, bombing happened, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like for people out there, man, just just focus on the soldiers right now, man. Focus on the mm-hmm. soldiers and the Marines and, you know, all those guys that were over there. I mean, hell, I can't give any information, but my son-in-law is in a high-speed group and he was there, you know, and he saw some, just in the short amount of time he was there, he saw a bunch of crazy shit. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, the other thing I would say, especially to like us guys who have been in combat, been getting shot at left and right and all. Imagine being that kid at Kabul airport 
that's sitting there pulling guard and seeing something happen to a lady outside the wire and you're not allowed to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you have to come home and live with that. You yeah. know, that's the thing. That's hard. Yeah. So like, especially those kids over there, cause you know, I live right outside of Fort Bragg. I mean, hell there's a brigade from Fort Bragg there. I mean, you know, they need to, they need to know even those guys, even though it didn't work out the way that anybody wanted it to, they did their job. They did what they were asked to do. And, and, you know, and I, and, and I tell you, I've been in some crazy situations, but nowhere in my psyche would I ever have wanted to have been in the situation that those kids were at at Kabul airport. Um, it was no, just no. terrible from the outside in, you know, looking in. Mm-hmm. I want to, um, let's go back. Cause I want to, for people listening, I want to hear more of, you know, how your military career began in the army. Like what got you to want to join the military to begin with? Well, I mean, um, you know, I always make jokes and say it was the longest day I watched with John Wayne and stuff like that, which <laughs> that was a big part of it. Cause I wanted to be a soldier cause they were cool on TV, but not nah, like, uh, growing up, um, my grandpa was a World War II vet. I had a couple uncles that were, uh, Korea, Vietnam vets. My dad, oh, wow. my dad missed Vietnam like by months, basically. I was born yeah. in 73. He was 19. So <clears throat> I think he got the draft paperwork, but then they stopped it because they started pulling everybody out. So he mm-hmm. never went. But uh, what I don't know, man, like ever since I was a little kid, I just always wanted to go in and serve. Uh, now, nowhere in my mind or if anybody would even ask me, would I ever thought that I would have stayed in almost 25 years, you know, um, but uh, for me, it was something that I just, I just had to do. And I had to see, you know, if I could do it. And, uh, so I went in in July, 92, um, went infantry and, uh, yeah, man, I mean, the majority of my career has been spent with the 82nd airborne, but I was also in, uh, the 25th, 10th mountain. And, uh, I did a stint in the, uh, the old garden in DC. Mm, uh, wow. And I think one of the best things that ever happened to me as far as soldier wise goes was being sent to the old gardener in the mid nineties. Um, because I did funerals in Arlington cemetery and, and, you know, I I did all these things and it was all discipline, discipline, discipline. And, you know, it, it made me understand that one day, you know, that might be me that these kids are carrying. Mm -hmm. And, and what we're doing out there is not for the guy in the casket. It's for his family. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just for me, man, it was a really, it was one of the best things that I could have done. I got, um, I got, uh, what do you call it? Recruited out of airborne school. Didn't know anything. I was a little Joe. I thought it was like some high speed stuff, you know, and went, which it was, it was, it was rough, but it, I wouldn't say high speed. It was a lot of high shining, but, uh, <laughs> but nah, man, it was a, it was a re- really good, uh, for me, I think for the rest of my career, it molded me as far as understanding that even if something doesn't make sense or there's, there's a call made by somebody, you know, you can second guess it, you can do whatever, but you do it after the fact, mm-hmm. because if you're trying to do it before or while the mission's going on, then you're going to fail. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it was just, it just taught me that every minute detail was just so important. And, you know, guys that know me throughout my career, they, you know, basically I was the, I was the uniform haircut, you know, everything guy, but to me, that's what kept guys alive, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, so 
That Arlington uh, Cemetery, though, is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And we went was, there in the heart of winter and it was like pouring rain and we didn't yeah. have an umbrella and we just walked around freezing rain and got drenched. But we just it was cool spending a couple hours walking around there through all the different rows. And they've ex- I mean, they expanded every year. But yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when I was there in the uh, mid 90s, uh, Section 60, where most of the GWAT is buried now, mm-hmm. didn't have anything in it. Yeah. Um, no, I think we walked through 60 and 61 and all that yep. Yep. by the, by the columbarium where they do the, uh, cremations and all. But, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I mean, hell, I have, I have eight buddies that are buried not in section 60 now, you know, I mean, it's, wow. it's crazy the way things work out, but yeah, man. I mean, I, I, uh, so I was in the old guard then I reenlisted to go to Hawaii cause it sounded cool and it looked nice. And then, uh, everything going on with, with, with the world. And then September 11th hit and I was actually getting out of the army was going to do like most young staff sergeants going to go be a wildlife and fisheries agent. You know, it's either that or there you go. <laughs> border patrol or cop or yep, go to yep. school. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, stuff changed. And, uh, you know, I told my wife, I was like, I can't get out and reenlisted, go to 82nd, um, got to the 82nd, uh, less than, six months later we were deploying uh and then the rest is history man i did most of my time there except for i left in 2011 to go to the sergeant major academy and they sent me to 10th mountain from there which when i was in 10th mountain all i ever heard from all the other ncos and the officers was your 82nd isms i'm like no it's army isms man not 82nd <laughs> but but yeah um but uh i've you know, I got five combat deployments, man. Um, three in, three in Afghanistan, two in Iraq. Uh, in in OF one in the invasion, I got messed up really bad. Got wounded. Was in Walter Reed for months. Um, fought a med board, stayed in, and then uh, deployed again less than a year later. And then the rest is history. Just kept deploying. Because uh, interesting. I tell you know, I, I tell people when they ask me why didn't I do the medical retirement route and all that stuff. And truthfully, what I know after I knew, you know, back then was if I would have, I'd be a statistic right now. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have survived it. You know? Wow. Do you think, because I mean, nine 11 is what inspired you to, to stay in, but was it just a drive to want to be there with everybody that you'd have been serving with just to be involved in what clearly was about to be, you know, our, our largest conflict that the U S has been in since, you know, desert storm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, um, for me, it was like, I'd been in so long. I mean, I made, I was a young staff sergeant and I knew that the war was happening. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no getting around that. And I knew that conventional units, in Hawaii at that time, there was no way we were going to Iraq or Afghanistan because it was all it was all Pacific theater. So I was like, screw that. I'm going. And I knew that if I either went to the 82nd or the 101st, that they were going to deploy. And um, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be a leg anymore. So I went to the 82nd because I was a, you know, I was a leg in the old guard in, uh, in uh, 25th. I mean, I got airborne school when I was a private. But uh, but yeah, man, I mean, it was and and i'll tell you for me it was getting to the 82nd and uh getting into a unit that like i had a first sergeant in hawaii that told me he's like when you get there man it's like a freaking 
a locomotive going 120 miles an hour that never freaking slows down. He's like, if you can handle it there, you can handle it anywhere. And he was right. But at the same time, I will say being there and going to war with the 82nd Airborne Division, there's just something about it, man. The lineage, the heritage, you know, guys mm -hmm. just like they step up, man. Mm -hmm. It might be because they're all touched in the head from jumping out of airplanes, but they step up when they need to step up. And that's, I love it, man. I mean, obviously you can tell, but, um, it's, well, it, it's a, it's a different cause it's, it, you're a two-time volunteer if you decide to go airborne, yeah. right? At mm -hmm. least a two-time volunteer is like, you have to be crazy enough to already volunteer to fall out of perfectly good airplanes. Yeah. But then, um, so everybody in that unit already has a different mentality than the rest of the military. Anybody who's a, a leg, you know, not airborne or hasn't qualified for or volunteered for something else, you know, it's just, it, it's already a different mindset. Yeah. It's uh it's, it, 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 it's such a different world, man. Um, and like I said, when I, when I left division and went to the Sergeant major Academy and then they sent me to 10th mountain, uh, I got to say the 82nd all the time and all that stuff. And I'm like, it's not the 82nd, man. It's the army, you know, mm -hmm. you got to get shit done, you know? So, uh, but, but, uh, you, you know, man, the other thing too. Um, and I mean, for me, I don't know how the stars aligned, but I competed for CSM and while I was deployed with 10th mountain, I got selected to come back to the 82nd and take the same battalion in which I did two deployments as a first sergeant, which was, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me, but I will tell you this. And for any of you out there listening that are staying in, you know, for me, I had those deployments, you know, all the stuff that I'd done, um, all my deployments with the 82nd, except for the 10th mountain. And I come back to be the command sergeant major and, uh, all American week happened. Right. And we had to, contact the gold star family members and all that stuff. Mm. And truthfully at that point throughout my career, I had never really faced all the losses and all the pain and everything. And, and I honestly, as a command sergeant major was, I was terrified to meet these families, man. You know, mm. I, because a lot of them were my guys and I had written letters and everything else, but you know, to finally slow down and be like, Oh crap. You know, I actually got to do it because, you know, we can all say whatever, but, but a lot of us, we lock it all back here and we kind of just kind of hide from it. You know, mm -hmm. like the missions go, keeps me going. It keeps me not focused on it and all that stuff. But it was, for me, it was one of the things I really needed though. Um, and I really didn't understand it until I got out. Um, but, mm -hmm. but, uh, and then I know it's, kind of off topic, kind of in topic. And I'll just throw this out there. Cause I get, I get asked this all the time. Why did I ever, why did I never go to the special forces route or any of that stuff? And the reason I didn't, man, and, and I'll, I'll tell you out there, like I got plenty of brothers that were there and I love them to death, but like I went to combat as a weapon squad leader, platoon sergeant, first sergeant, sergeant major. If I would have went to combat with the special forces, I would have been Mac, 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 Mac if that makes sense mm -hmm. to you. Yeah. I just, you know, I had that experience and, and, you know, the guys were what kept me going and kept me alive. And, 
and I like putting boot in their ass. So it was, uh, it just worked out for me. But uh, yeah, man, dudes ask me that all the time because I'm all tatted up and shit. And I'm like, nah, I'm just an old grunt, man. I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not special, you know? If, if it helps, I think uh, Dan here didn't realize he was going into special operations. No, I didn't. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. <laughs> I know that sounds really strange to hear. Yeah, but not, uh, but, but like I'm saying, man, I mean, the way I look at it is everybody has a path and everybody has a job to do. And, uh, yeah. and you know, if I'd have, if I'd have chose a different route, who knows where I'd be. And at the same time, you know, like, um, I don't think I would have been happy there because like I said, man, when you go to combat, like major combat, like an invasion against an army and you're, you're in charge of a nine man, uh, weapon squad with machine guns that you actually use for real and do that shit then you get to you see that this nine-man weapon squad can accomplish any freaking thing but they can't do it if they don't have the right guy here actually giving them direction mm -hmm. and uh, and it just felt right man plus i think getting wounded was a lot of it too you know like i'm, I'm gonna stay in the fight blah 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 but but yeah, man, I just throw it out there because people ask me all the time, man, like all yeah. the time. And I'm like, no, I, just, I, I was like, who knows? Hell, I might have not made it, man. But I just mm -hmm. never, I never really, I never tried. Never really, uh, the thought never even really entered my mind, you know? Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I've mentioned this several times uh, as a civilian, you know, before, I guess, becoming more educated on working on the 20 year war book and then, you know, being around Dan and, and guys like yourself, when I thought of veterans and maybe this is like the whole video game in Hollywood that kind of portrays it this way, they look like you. Like I literally just picture that most veterans were bearded, tattooed, like badass kind of guys, just like killing machines. And I, I never knew going into it, like interviewing all these veterans and seeing that they're just everyday people, men and women just like myself, that there really is a massive stereotype out there. Yeah, dude, not, I think I think a lot of it, too, is because, you know, when we do get out one, we have all those rules all those years. So we can't, you know, hair and beard and all that crap. Mm -hmm. But two, I think it's just, you know, when we when we transition out, we're trying to find our real identity. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, look at me, dude. Like, I talk to people all the time. And when I talk to kids or anybody, I don't go up to him like, I'm a retired sergeant major. You know, I just talk to him. And then <laughs> you, when they eventually find out, they're like, oh, they never guess you're a sergeant major. I was like, yeah, because I don't still freaking have a high and tight and tuck my shirt in. And I told myself when I was getting out that that part of me was was done. You know, mm -hmm. like, like because especially in this world and in the, in the veteran community, you know, like if guys see that I'm just me, especially all the kids that look up to me, then they're going to be like, hey, Sergeant Major's got a freaking mohawk. You know, he's got earrings. He's got this. Like, he's doing whatever the hell he wants. And that's and that's the whole point, man, is like, like uh, with that, you know, what, what I tell a lot of a lot of people when they ask, I'm like, I'm like, you know, veterans, their their whole life that they were in, they served everybody but themselves. Mm -hmm. And then when you get out, you know, and, and the hardest thing for most of us to understand is we need to serve ourselves a little bit. Yep. And, uh, and it took me a long time to figure that out. You know, like even you, if you, you look you at You got to be authentic to you. Mm -hmm. Well, my, my first, uh, my first year out of the army, you could look at me and I still kind of had that. I was still 
trying to hold on to it, if that makes sense to you, you know. Like I had a little beard, but it was nice and short and groomed up, you know, and and it just, I don't know, man. I just finally got to the point to where, you know, if I'm somewhere and I see some kids, I'm going to know they're veterans. I'm going to know whatever. Mm-hmm. So I can just go up and bullshit with them. They know I'm some old guy. They know I'm a veteran. I mean, hell, you can tell with the tattoos. But honestly, when you go up and talk to a, a retired command sergeant major, you don't expect him to have a mohawk and earrings and freaking, you know, wearing a heavy metal shirt and shit. And then you're like, <laughs> holy fuck, this guy's cool. No, nah, he's, he's not cool. He's just himself, man. You know, and that's, yep. uh, and I think that's important because we have that, that identity that while we're in and a lot of that identity, it's not ours. It's what we were molded into, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you get out, man, you just gotta be you and you gotta, you gotta do stuff for you. And that's, that's hard for all of us to comprehend, man. You know? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, something I, you, you, you hit basically right on what I put in the, in the book and kind of the intro in my section, when I'm talking about it is the, yeah. the self-reflection. It's the, like, looking back at yourself and, and what your service meant, but then also paving the way for you to become yourself. Just mm-hmm. be you. Don't yeah. be anything else. You don't have to be defined by whatever stereotypes that are out there. You don't have to be defined by your service. You can just be you. Yes, your service has shaped a lot of aspects of like how you act and how you perform and how you you know have drive and all those other things, but you can still just be you. Yeah, and 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 man, with that, like what I truly believe now is I've been almost five years retired now is that if you can face you and start becoming you, then you can survive this life, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you can't let that identity go, like, because the way I look at it, man, is that was me. That's who I was. That's who I had to be. And for all those years, that's who I wanted to be. But now that I'm, I'm out, man, I can be me. I can do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, obviously people, you got to make a living and all that crap, but I'm going to be, I'm at the point in my life now to where if I'm not happy doing something, I'm going to do something else. Um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, and, and uh, with that, man, like the, I think the other hard part about just learning to be you is especially if you were a leader in the military is everybody expects you to be this guy, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and guys ask me for advice all the time on leadership in the military. And I'm like, I'm like two things. Number one, remember, you're not their friend. You're their leader. And number two, be seen. And then like I tell guys now, now that I'm not your leader anymore, I can be your friend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a hard thing for guys to understand too, because, and, you know, I get it all the time. You probably do too, man, from guys that work for me. Like, I'll get messages like, you were such an asshole. You know, I hated you for this one thing. And I don't remember it, but they're like, <laughs> it molded me for the rest of my Army career. And now I understand why you did it. And that's why I tell them, I'm like, if I'm your leader, man, I can't be your friend. But at the same time, I also can't take the shit personal. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why, like, I know you guys get it. Like, if I saw a kid jacked up and – I scuffed him up for a minute or whatever. I'd walk away if the deficiency was fixed. I didn't forgot about it, you know, because it was never personal it was business. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but it's important to me um, now because truthfully, man, it keeps me alive is being 
being a guy that, you know, you guys, these guys, everybody wants to talk to you, not, you know, not some guy that's like, I was a command sergeant major. I did all this. Blah, blah, blah. Like, who gives a shit, man? You know, like, mm-hmm. you did a job. You did it till you retired, even though they call it retirement. It ain't enough to live on, but you still get something. But, you know, you did, you stayed in. Okay, got it. But it doesn't make you who you are, man. Like me, I was a metalhead before I joined the Army. It was metalhead while I was in. I mean, hell, I had long hair for a while after I got out. You know, it's like, just do you, man. And, and, and if you can learn to do you, then you can see those things that are that are pushing against you or those demons that are there that are that are just stopping everything, stopping the happiness and all that stuff. And if you just and if you take a step back and do you and look at you, you can see that asshole and then you can control him and he can't control you. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It's, it's crazy, too, because uh, for people that are listening uh don was i think one of the few veterans that sent me like a photo dump of like deployment photos like most people i think would send you know two to three to four i think i got like 30 from don and i was like oh sweet i got a lot to choose from for the book but i remember going through and just seeing every photo of like just clean shave short hair and then meeting up with you in person i'm like damn dude you look so much different yeah (laughs) yeah i get told i look a lot younger now which is cool. Most people look older with a beard, but I, I look younger, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, but, and believe it or not, man, those pictures, I never took pictures on deployment. That's just stuff guys sent me over the years, man. You know, like mm-hmm. that's the other thing I tell guys now too. If you're in, all you guys got cell phones and cameras, take a shit on mm-hmm. the pictures because yep. you look back on it and, and there's so much stuff that you're afraid you'll forget because you don't have mm-hmm. a, a visual, you know, something to look at. And, uh, and then, you know, and it's also hard because if you're a leader, you're focused on everything else except for taking pictures, you know, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's man. interesting. Cause you definitely see that now. Like, yeah, uh, for instance, I think last time. week I reshared a video from a Marine who was over there and he made like a whole 15 minute montage mm-hmm. with like music behind it and everything of like showing like what's going on behind the wire and everything there. And you're like, well, that's kind of crazy. Cause I don't think I've ever seen footage like that in depth. No. And like, you know, for example, when I was a first sergeant deployed, you know, like we had to take photos for the 82nd yearbook, right, from the deployment. So, and this will blow your guys' mind. This is how much of an asshole I am, but I had to do it. Is I made the platoon sergeants turn in every photo to me, and I went through them before I sent them to division because I wanted to make sure that they all looked squared away, the uniforms were right, they were doing all the right shit. And I remember. One of my platoon charges was like, first sergeant, nobody really cares. I was like, I do. And he's like, but why? I'm like, because perception's reality, man. If you look jacked up, then you are jacked up. If you look squared mm-hmm. away, you are squared away. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to send something to somebody above me that I have a QAQC first. And now that same guy told me that I understand because he's a sergeant major now. You know, he's like, oh, I get it. I'm like, yeah, you get it, don't you? <laughs> Cause I will say this too, man, for those of you listening, I got my ass chewed a lot in the army, but never, never as many times as I did when I was a command sergeant major. People think it's all gravy. Hell no. Cause the odds are stacked against you. So dudes yeah. are going to do dumb stuff and you're going to get your ass chewed. I was going to say, if anything, you're just covering your ass. Yeah. Just I mean, covering well, their ass. Well, it's yeah. a, the, the typical thing is like as a leader and especially at the top, 
you are responsible for everything you know your guys do and fail yep. to do so anytime anybody would screw up i'm every time sergeant major gets a phone call somebody gets a dui sergeant major yep. gets a phone call somebody got in a fight sergeant major gets a phone call somebody didn't show up to a formation and was found by the cops a day later or whatever sergeant major gets a phone call jeez yep that phone's ringing all night yeah like some weekends man i'd be like just let tonight be the night i sleep all the way through <laughs> you know i want to go but back I, and dive a little bit into um your individual we don't have to go through all five but i'm curious to hear some of your deployments what, what was it like to be in iraq kind of during the initial invasion or just a couple years after well i'll tell you man the invasion was uh it was what i would say to people like what you expect war would be you know what i mean like there was an army we were going in we were shocking on them we were facing them face to face and uh we were much better shot so we kicked the crap out of them you know mm -hmm. um but what i will also say about uh the invasion in iraq was like um it was you know, it was old army still technically. We didn't have all the high speed stuff that everybody's got now. You know, we were still in there. If you're in a regular infantry unit, you ain't wearing Oakleys where you think you're SF, you know, stuff like that. But um, it was, you know, it, it, I truthfully, what it taught me was that everything we were taught about combat was like BS uh, mm -hmm. because we own the night, right? But guess when we attack at daybreak? So they said mm -hmm. they don't fight at night, you know, I'm like, what the hell, you know, like, um, but it was, uh, the invasion I'll tell you was, it was like nothing I ever could have imagined. And we, like I said, man, we kicked the crap out of the bad guys. I mean, hell I was a weapon squad leader. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen the, the, uh, the James Deeps print, the bridge of the freedom, but, uh, mm -hmm. it's technically it's my squad in the picture. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it's a, it was a it's a cool battle print, but what he did was yeah. take a bunch of different pictures and put them together. Mm. But uh, you know, our first big so basically, and it's not it's public knowledge now, but back in February of '03, I was in uh, White Falcon Second Three Two Five and Eighty Second, and we we got the mission to deploy with Seventy Fifth Ranger Regiment and jump in and secure Biop, um, so Baghdad International. So. When we deployed, we deployed in civilian clothes. We had no clue where we were going. I couldn't, my wife didn't know. Uh, it was only my battalion. The rest of our brigade deployed later to Kuwait. And we were there and, you know, our mission, we were going to jump into buyout. And uh, obviously the thunder run and the sandstorms and all that crap, uh, basically third ID made it to it and bypassed everything. And I love my third ID brothers, but they made a lot, a lot of more work for us. Uh, but you know, they got there. So the, the jump got scratched at like the, at like an hour, basically. So we got on the same birds that we we're going to jump out of no seats, none of that crap flew into, into Tulil, Iraq, linked up with a part of the brigade. We were a brigade minus basically every battalion had to leave a uh, company back. And uh, yeah. And then we were told, Hey, um, the Fedayeen is in the town of Asamoa. They're 4,000 plus strong. They're coming up. They're trying to close the two bridges to keep, supplies from getting a third id so you guys are going to go in and open those bridges and we were like okay and then we gacked on the back of freaking lmtvs for like a day 
and we get there and then, you know, we get there at night and you're seeing the shock and awe come in and all. And they're like, What's, what time are we hitting? Blah, blah, blah. They're like, Daybreak. I was like, What the shit? You know, like, <laughs> we're hitting them at daybreak. We got nods and lasers and crap, you know, but, but anyway, yeah. Um, you know, my squad, we were, we were, uh, support by fire element at bridge one and, uh, and we locked it down. I was, for my company, me and one of my AGs were the first ones across Highway 5. And uh, I, I guess not to get into all the war stories, but for me, the coolest thing was we crossed. I started looking at spots to land the guns and we did what we had to do. And it seemed like every window across the river was shooting at us, right? Because they were all dug in the high rise buildings and all, but they couldn't shoot for shit. But it took me literally a few minutes to realize that hey holy shit they're really shooting at us because i remember i asked full he was my ag i was like what the fuck's that noise excuse my language and he was like i think they're shooting at us aren't you know like and you know, oh crap so you know i start and then I get my guns up and all and uh and what i'll tell you is what i learned that day was and a first sergeant told me this in hawaii because i asked him how do you know if you're ready for combat he's like if you get shot at and you do your job without thinking about it, then you're a combat soldier and you're ready for combat. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, all those years of battle drills and everything else, that's all we did, man, is we just reacted, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and we kicked the crap out of them, which was cool. It was good for us. But later on down the road, you know, 10 months later, when I'm, I got, I, I, I made the seven list while we were deployed and I got given a platoon. Then uh, two months after I took my platoons, when I got hit, and uh, the bad guys actually had a hit out on me, on me and my really? buddy Cavazos. Yeah, because back then they knew your your areas, you know, your little your platoon sectors. So, and it was a routine going to check on some dudes at the Al Rashid Bank and Outdoor Market, and yeah, you know, went with my new PL, and we went and checked, and coming back right in the market, like right there at the power substations when they hit us. And uh, I still look back on that today and I I still don't understand how I didn't see it coming, you know, and that was, uh, that was the second IED to hit the 82nd. Um, So Mm, we didn't even really, I mean, we were learning about IEDs, but we didn't really know. Fortunately for me, the assholes hadn't perfected it yet. So it was one, it was five, one, five, five rounds, but it was under the asphalt. So the asphalt took a lot of the blast Mm, and, you know, we didn't have any up armored vehicles or nothing. Um, But that day truly made me it molded me into the the guy i was the rest of my army career because it made me understand that no matter how good you are no matter how much of a badass you are the enemy always gets a vote Mm -hmm. make sure your freaking head's on a swivel and you got your shit tight so yeah um that's interesting yeah it was uh you know of one was was it was different because, you know, we took out the army the first few months and then we went into sustainment operations. Then we started raiding every night, taking fedding journals and all that stuff. So it really wasn't like, it was a lot of work, but if people ask me today, if I would choose Iraq or Afghanistan, I'd choose Iraq any day of the week because mm-hmm. one, the assholes couldn't fight that good. And two, you know, we could find them a lot easier and we could fix them. Um, and my second deployment to Iraq was basically we got called up for the DRF to uh, for the elections into Baghdad to clear out Highway 8. Um, we got there December. 
while we were there, they said the commandos were back. That's what they called us and all that shit. Nothing happened. And then Camp Stryker got bombed uh, up at, um, in Missoula. And then we got sent up there to go fight with the 25th. And I will tell you, that was the Wild West, but that was the kind of stuff you expect in the military. And I, you know, it's, people's like, it's so tough. I'm like, realistically, that was one of the easiest deployments I had because the bad guys were coming out trying to fight us every day, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, but uh, deployments wise, and I don't want to like go up, but I, I will tell you this, man. My first deployment to Afghanistan, RC East, it was, there was some stuff going on, but it wasn't bad. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it was more, you know, a lot of, a lot of traveling, a lot of patrolling, but not a lot of action. Um, mm -hmm. My fourth deployment, um, we were the main effort for the battalion. My company was, we got sent down to Hellman when the big offensive was going on there, um, September, October, November of 09. So we were down there with the Marines and the Brits shooting it up. Then we got a uh, battle space to come into the Argandab River Valley in Kandahar. And uh, I could talk for hours about Kandahar, but what I will tell you is all the shit I had seen, everything I had been through, all the training I had done, we could have never anticipated what that place was like. Like it mm -hmm. was like, literally it was hell, man. Like, you know, um, to, to be a first sergeant and, every day wondering which guy's going to lose a leg or which guy's going to do this and, and forcing yourself to be out with them, knowing that the odds are against you, man. Like it was just, I don't know, man, it, it, and, and that's why, like, even now I really, really, really keep up with those guys. I think more than the rest of my guys, because dude, I'm telling you, man, I'm, I could sit here and tell stories all day long, but, and you know, in Afghanistan or wherever, if I'm in this Valley and you're in this Valley, yeah, we know we were in combat, but our fights were totally different. So it's hard to explain, you know, mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was out of everything I've been through, man, that deployment was the only one that I thought that I was going to die. Like, I honestly thought I wasn't coming back because I thought the odds were against me. Um, and then my last deployment, I deployed as a brigade ops art major and I got jacked because it was the first time I ever got to live on a fob and use a gym and I freaking, you know, just scuff people up for being out of uniform and shit. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a totally different because we went and we were, uh, training the Afghan, you know, at SFAT, uh, and just real quick, I'll get off from it. But, uh, we went to JRTC beforehand and I was at Fort Polk in the 10th mountain. And that was the hardest JRTC deployment I ever had. Deploying a JRTC from JRTC was ridiculous. If you don't know what that is, that's Fort Joint Readiness Training Center, Fort Polk, Louisiana. But anyway, they originally had me on the list to be an advisor for a SAR major. And a week into our JRTC rotation, the uh, the uh, ops group, I think it was the CSM then, and, and my brigade commander and everybody else like, SAR major, you're not going to be an advisor. You'll just run the talk. I was like, yeah, roger that. Because, you know, I mean, I, I just couldn't – that wasn't who I was, man. But uh, – but yeah, man, I mean, you know, we could all, you know, I could tell war stories all day long, just like you guys, you know, everything. But, but uh, what I will say is if you get a chance, Google Hellman September 09, and then Google the Argandab River Valley Kandahar um, December 
of uh of 2009 on and you'll see uh i mean the bad thing was we didn't have a lot of uh reporters or anything out there because it was too dangerous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh i could tell you guys and we could do that offline but stories that would blow your mind you're like how the hell did that happen but anyway in short that's kind of yeah my deployments uh i will say um in this war this tattoo right here i got 25 parachutes for 25 of my my brothers and then you know my soldiers that i lost fortunately for me under my command i only lost three but buddies with me or some of my soldiers that were in different platoons and all over the years and then um the hardest thing for me to to after all that crap is i've had 15 kill themselves over the years and and uh yeah man i mean it's and you try to like i said you try to rationalize you try to understand and 15 yeah that's insane yeah like one is too many what's that i said one is too many and then you hear a 15 well you got to figure man when you're when you stay in you know almost 25 years and you know and you know so many guys and then you know it's just like some of them and you guys know this too you see some guys that get out and they just can't handle life period Mm -hmm. not so much just the military but it's just life but then there are other ones like we all talk about like you know i just talked to you talked to him last night he was good and then the next morning he's gone you know Um, jeez yeah so yeah i got a lot of baggage man but i'm trying to you know trying to use it for good and not the woe is me type crap you know I think that's all you can do. And I think that's the important thing is why we have these podcasts is, you know, it's obviously to educate, um, you know, people like myself, other civilians, but also for veterans to have a a space to come to, to listen to other stories that are hopefully going to impact them and that they can, you know, maybe put some plots together, you know, that they're very similar in that regard to the men and women that have fought beside them or the stories that we're sharing. So I think it's important to, hear a little bit about your deployments, but no, I agree. We don't need to go down the, the typical rabbit hole. Those stories have been told and will be continuing to be told. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But like, I'm, I'm curious, um, kind of an offhand, more fun question. Cause you mentioned it earlier, obviously people look and they can see you have a Mastodon t-shirt on. Yeah. Where did your love from metal come from? Where did that stem? Well, um, when I was a little kid, as I was born in 73, so I'll tell you how old I am. Uh, when I was a little kid, my dad, Damn, you do not look like it. <laughs> you do not look <laughs> like from 73. <laughs> my, my dad, you know, he listened to like the stuff from the sixties, you know, like iron butterfly and, uh, freaking the stones, you know, different stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I don't know. I might've been six, seven years old. Um, I saw a kiss eight track and I kept whining to my dad. I want that. I want that. Cause it looks so cool. So I got kiss and, uh, and then as I got a little bit older, started listening to like Van Halen and all. And uh, what really turned me into a true metalhead was in, I want to say it was 84. Um, one of my buddies, big brother, we were riding in his car and I was only 10, 11 years old. And he had freaking Metallica kill them all on. And I was mm. like, That's a oh great my one. God, what the hell is that? You know, I never heard anything <laughs> like that. And then <laughs> I heard it and then I just like it became like an obsession. Like I'd have to, you know, 
raking leaves and doing everything else to give me some money, just go to the record store. And then I would, mm-hmm. I would buy like metal albums just because of how cool the cover looked. Yep. And sometimes mm-hmm. it was hit or miss. Sometimes it was good. Other times it was shit. But, uh, but yeah, man, it just, it hit me as a little kid. And, uh, like, it's one of those things, like a lot of people have, you know, all these different, you know, you got your hobby, you got whatever, you know, but like metal to me, man, it's like, it, uh, it's like therapy to me, man. Like, yeah. like uh, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't fault anybody else for other music, but, um, you know, people would think I'm a country guy cause I'm from Louisiana. You know, I'm definitely not a country guy, uh, but metal, which what's so cool about metal to me is like, and then as you get older, you kind of understand it, but it's kind of like the veteran community, like the metal community. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your background is. If you go to a show, everybody's cool, you know, yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, and people are there to be a part of that experience. And, you know, and uh, like, like I, you know, I had, when I was a kid, uh, I don't know if you you guys probably don't remember it, but they had the '80s satanic panic going on. Uh, all yeah, the moms yeah, and everybody that. were acting like all their kids were devil worshippers and all this crap. Yep. So I had like a Slayer poster up, and you gotta take that down, blah blah. blah. I'm like, <laughs> and then my dad saved me because he's like, he's like, here's the deal. He watches horror movies all the time. It's the same crap. If he was a sociopath, he'd be a sociopath either way. So let the kid do what he wants to do, you know, like because for me it was like like the scary bands was like a horror movie man it was just like i wanted to mm-hmm. see what they were gonna say or what the but yeah man it's uh and i, I use it a lot in the army you know like i got mm-hmm. kids i would uh like even when i was a sergeant major we didn't jam the normal crap when we were doing freaking uh battalion runs and shit we had some freaking pantera slayer freaking megadeth yeah. you yep. know I was about to ask you if you were a DJ for uh, oh, yeah. like in the ready room before <laughs> like, missions oh, yeah. and stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I made my my S6 new exactly. We weren't doing the Taylor Swift and the freaking all the all the other crap that everybody does. We were doing it was like I told dudes, I'm like, this shit should motivate you, you know, mm-hmm. like. But yeah, I just I love it, man. Like it. it uh, I my wife says I'm never going to grow up. And I was like, hey, that might be the case, but. You know, you know, what's funny about that, though, is uh, so I listen to metal when I work out um, and I grew up with it. My dad was like the same thing. His favorite band was Kiss, was in a Metallica, you know, all that stuff. So I kind of went from hearing Metallica, you know, and um, and, and hearing all that stuff. And then it kind of transitioned when I was like really young. I think I was like in ninth grade. I was like on the bus to school listening to like Lamb of God and like Devil Driver and like stuff like that and Megadeth and all those. And for some reason people would listen to him like that's gonna make you an angry kid and i'd go to shows every weekend and like go to like these like death metal concerts you know like you said they got like the crazy fonts like in blood and stuff like that and and it honestly most people i spoke to that was their outlet Mm, and like a lot of the people i talked to were like very like intelligent people and they weren't they weren't like full of anger or hatred maybe there was mosh pits people got hurt but they'd get picked right back up and it was just a fun time for people to like escape from society a little bit yeah it's like it's it's uh you know like like i've been to country concerts with people you know other stuff and like i said when you go to a metal show like a real metal show mm-hmm. like people are focused on the band and the music mm-hmm. yeah and you know 
I've caught myself in the last couple of years for COVID. My old ass was in the mosh pit a few times with a couple of my buddies. Cause I have a, I have two buddies. One's a retired Colonel and the other one's a retired Sergeant Major. And they're both super metal heads like me. So every year we try to get together and go to a show. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, like for me, it's just, and it, and it's really cool too. Like when I go to these things and like the young kids start talking to me and all, and they're like, Holy crap, man, you're cool as shit. You know, like it, Cause it's like, dude, it's like, it just speaks to me. And it's, uh, and since I've been retired, man, I've been able to meet some of my heroes in metal and actually become friends with them and all. And it's, uh, it's pretty crazy, man. What are some of those stories of like people that you've met? Well, like, uh, I think the, the coolest guy I met and he's not a metal singer, but he, uh, he hosts, uh, liquid metal and octane Jose Mangan. I don't know if you guys Mm -hmm. listen to that. Yeah, yeah. The metal ambassador, Jose. So I met him through Carla Harvey from the Butcher Babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I do a lot of nonprofit work. And I met him. He had me on the radio out at the Affliction headquarters in L.A. Yep. back in 17 for Metal in the Military Week. Um, I've seen that studio. I When I went and met up with Ben, who um, obviously runs Howitzer. Yeah, that's that's based in that same warehouse as Affliction. I remember walking through and taking the tour and seeing the XM radio station there, where all the 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 stage and all they had built. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well, well, anyway, that's a bitching setup. But I met Jose, and the coolest thing was is when I met the guy. Like the only thing he said was, "Dude, how can I help you out, man? Like, what do you guys need? You know?" And then, uh, and. So anyway, long story short, he had me on there and then uh, he was like, dude, we're going to figure out something to do something. So like a month later, I was back here and I get a call and it was Jose Mangan. He was like, hey, dude, I want to do a, a taco metal party at the Affliction headquarters and, you know, give the money. We'll do like some silent auction stuff or whatever. But uh, the band otherwise, I don't know if you've heard of them, mm-hmm. but they sing soldiers and they're out of L.A. He was like, yeah, man, they're going to do a uh, album release party. And uh, they said they'd be all about it. So anyway, I I went and brought, uh, I think, six of my old guys. Uh, most of them live in California. There were amputees and stuff. Um, and anyway, long story short, we hung out all night, partied it up. I got to see, this is how much of a metal nerd I am. Like I saw uh, Eddie from King. He's like best friends with Jose. But I saw him like standing off the side and I was like, I was like, that's freaking Eddie from King, man. And people were like, who the hell's King? What is that? And I went up and I was like, hey, dude, I ain't fanboy out or nothing. I don't do that shit. I was like, I just, I love your music, man. He's like, dude, you know the fuck I am? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> You're freaking, well, anyway, <laughs> at about 11 o'clock, all the civilians left. And uh, me and me and the boys stayed with Jose and King and we jammed. And I got to sing uh, War Pigs by Black Sabbath with King. That's awesome. Damn. Awesome. But I got a little video of that I posted on my, but, uh, yeah, man, he's a really, really awesome guy that, uh, truly gives a shit about veterans and all, you know, and, uh, a lot of them do, uh, do a lot of support. Yeah. A lot and of they, metal bands support a lot of veterans. Well, I mean, I could tell you a lot of stories, but for time, I'll tell you the coolest other than meeting Jose. And I, and if you ever go back through my stuff, you'll see all the guys I've got to meet and hang out with, but, uh, so I was at Ozfest in 2017 um, in San Bernardino. Was that the last one? What's that? Was that the last one? It was the 
it was the last one they had before COVID and all. They're actually starting to back okay. up. Well, it yeah. was Ozfest, hmm. Ozfest meets Notfest. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, anyway, I was there. Uh, Elaney Reese and her husband, John, they run uh, SG Entertainment. So they run all the big festivals. And I'd reached out to her because I was doing some nonprofit stuff. And I was like, hey, you know, we'd like to have a booth out there, you know, just try to get the word out on what we're doing. She's like, hell yeah. So we went out there. Jose was hosting it. Um, I had uh, uh, Nick Quijano and Sagan Emery. They're married. Nick used to be the uh, lead guitarist for Power Man 5000. Mm -hmm. I met him through some other stuff. We became buddies. So they came to help run the booth. But anyway, first off, at Ozfest meets Notfest, I would say 70% of that place was veterans. And there was 40,000 people there. Like it was 40, crazy. 40,000? Yeah. So Jeez. anyway, the, the second night of the festival when um, uh, Stone Sour and Rob Zombie were headlining, right? Uh, we closed the booth down every day at six and then we go watch shows. Well, Laney comes up to me and she's like, what are you guys doing tonight? I was like, we're going to watch the show. She's like, well, uh, meet me and Jose by the main entrance. Bring, you know, I have my wife, my buddy, Jared, he's missing his right arm. They're like, come meet us there. We got something cool. And I was like, all right, cool. They're going to let us go backstage or something. So anyway, we meet them. They bring us backstage, right? And I'm seeing like all these badass metal singers are like my heroes and all. And I'm like, don't fanboy out. Don't fanboy out. Don't be that guy. <laughs> you know, you know, can I take a picture? You know, I was like, don't be that guy. Just be cool. And, uh, you know, we got to talk to Rob Zombie, but he was in a hurry. So I didn't take pictures with him. But Sherry was with him, believe it or not. Um, but the coolest thing was, is I'm sitting here. I mean, the Death Angel guys were in there, uh, like, and uh, freaking, I hear this voice behind me, and my buddy Jared's right here, and my wife, and I was like, "That's Corey Taylor." And if you don't know <laughs> who Corey Taylor is, somebody already slapped the crap out of you. Yeah. But anyway, but I was like, "That's Corey Taylor," because his voice is unmistakable. And I'm not kidding you. No sooner than I said that, this little short guy comes up, puts his hand on my shoulder, and is like, "Is this the guy?" And I was like, the hell, you know, and it was Corey Taylor. And he's like, dude, we got something awesome for you. And I was like, what? And he was like, he's like, man, for all you do and all you've done, he's like, this is the least we could do. And I was like, what? You know, like, and you just sit there and talk with me like forever. And then uh, anyway, they still didn't tell me what was going on. So I'm thinking we're going to watch the show from side stage, right? So we mm -hmm. go out there. Well, anyway, John, the guy that runs the show and uh, Jose, when I was side stage, they didn't tell me, but they're out there like, hey, uh, hey, Mac, come on out here. And I was like, 40,000 people, man, at Ozfest. Holy shit. <laughs> so I go out on stage and uh, they were like, hey, dude, the boys in Stone Sour and us, we just want to do something really cool for you, man. And, you know, they obviously they told all stuff. He's got this. He's a war hero. Like, no. But uh, but yeah, I got given a. Uh, Signed guitar by Corey Taylor and all of Stone Sour in front of 40,000 people. What? Damn, yeah, that's insane. To show you guys. Yeah, I want to yeah. see that. Yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. <clears throat> that's incredible. The time so that you can. Or it's going to be on your time. Uh, one, five. Dude. That's it. That is sick. That's incredible. Yeah, where's, here's one of the pictures when I was hanging with, with uh, Corey Taylor. Wow, dude, that's yeah, awesome! Dude. I think a lot of people would kill for that opportunity. <laughs> okay. No oh yeah, well that's why I told I would. I'm a little jealous. My family, but like Stone yeah. Sour, 2017. That's a clean guitar too. Oh yeah, it's never been used. 
I'd keep it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I figured get like that, an acrylic that was frame a cool and... story to tell, you know, because, uh, you know, as an old grunt and all, you don't expect stuff like that, you know, like, no. yeah. Um, but was that, was like that pretty intimidating said, too, to like walk out to initially? Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> 40,000 yeah. people. Oh yeah. I yeah, get stage I mean, fright sometimes in front of like a hundred people. And I mean, I could show you pictures cause you know, my wife and them got pictures from behind, which is pretty awesome where I'm like this and you see like all the people, but I also, uh, Jose's friend did professional pictures and all too, but like, man, it was like for me just being a, a metalhead my whole life. And, um, and to me, and I, like I said, I've met a lot of my heroes who, who genuinely give a shit about us, man. That's pretty awesome. You know, mm -hmm. like, cause like I told him, I was like, just that, like even my boys and otherwise, you know, now we're really good friends and anytime they come into town, they always, they hit me up like, Hey dude, you got any veteran bros that want to come hang out with us or whatever? Cause like to them, they're like, Hey dude, you guys did all that shit. At least we could do is just freaking buy you a whiskey or, and like yeah. I told him, I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, a lot of times for dudes like us, just you guys taking the time just to talk, man, is like, it's soul cleansing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, that was it's, story, it's funny. Man. You mentioned, sorry. um, that, you know, as you're getting older, you kind of stay away from the mosh pits. I remember, I think every weekend we'd go to shows. I had like a group of people we thought were like the coolest kids ever. We had a, a group called like loveless. And I remember like, there was like, I don't know, 20 of us kids that would just go to shows and like beat down on other kids in the mosh pit and then pick them up. And there's one day, I don't know if you've heard of terror, but there was a, it's like a metal band. And I remember I had my terror? nose terror. Yeah. Yeah. I know what terror is. Yeah. So I broke my nose at that concert and, uh, just, I don't know, for some reason, like wasn't looking up or something like that. And someone's hand came up and hit me in the nose and broke my septum. And I barely even felt it, but I had a bloody nose the whole show. And I just stayed right there and kept rocking out. <laughs> That's the way you got to do it, man. Like, yeah. like Exodus said, you know, the toxic waltz, man bang your head against the wall yeah <laughs> yeah that's it, an awesome story yeah i mean that was that was like for me man like just being an old grunt and you know all that crap that was one of the coolest things ever to anybody's ever done for me man like it was just like that thing was and i already told my daughters and everybody it's going to be in my will that it never leaves the family mm -hmm. that's yeah. cool if funny enough um i think you you lightly touched on it when we met but you and I share the same love for a few veteran organizations. And I'm curious to hear your experience with uh, helicopters for heroes. Dude, that was uh helicopters for heroes was one of the, I'd say the top three uh, organizations I've done anything with since I've, I've been yeah. retired, man. And I'm, I think what I really, what I really like about those guys is, you know, they're not getting anything. They're doing it for other mm -hmm. organizations, you know, but the coolest thing is, man, you bring a bunch of veterans together and let them ride on little birds and crap and shoot hogs. And oh yeah, you know, man, <laughs> I had, uh, one of my guys, Jared lemon, the first time I went, he's missing his right arm, man. And he outshot me shooting hogs, you know? <laughs> um, but, but yeah, man, it's like, it, it, it you know, I went out there, um, I had, we had, uh, down in think, Texas, right? Yeah. Nine of my guys out in Enos, Texas back in 17 was the first time. And then I went again in 18 the next year. Um, what's really awesome about it, man, is you get to, you know, you're out there in Texas, there's 
all these rich guys that show up that want to eat with mm-hmm. the veterans and check out the concert and all, but the guys get to see that, you know, there's no, it's all it is, is a bunch of veterans hanging out, man, really like truthfully yeah. and, and getting to shoot guns and, and, uh, you know, there's no, you can't drink beer. You can't do this. You can do whatever. Cause the dudes out there are like this is for you guys, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the cool thing about it, like I said, is they pick different organizations every year to actually give the proceeds to. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and they, and I'm pretty sure they make quite a bit of money too. This thing just fell. But yeah, they, uh, well, the, I think a, the owner, he's, I, I could be mistaken, but I believe he's a billionaire. Oh yeah. He um, is. And I, and I uh, know that, uh, Jake and Samantha that work there are the two that I usually speak to. I haven't talked to him for a little while, but yeah, I mean, they're all great people that work for them. Like Samantha, she was the one that I spoke to the first couple of mm-hmm. times, uh, Phil's the guy who headed it. He's the billionaire. Yeah. He used to be the CEO of Interscope Records. And yep. I've talked to him and Jake on the phone before, I think a while ago. I only spoke to Phil once and then it kind of went through Jake and Samantha. But yeah, man, they're all about, uh, you know, that's why I got a couple of buddies who have organizations. I'm like, hit those guys up and try to try to do some stuff. But uh, right now, man, I've been working with uh, Heart Support. uh, Okay. So I don't know if you guys heard of them, but basically, oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So Jacob Lures from uh, August Burns Red started it, um, mm-hmm. but now they're uh, partnering with Tim from the Veterans Project um, on a project called Hard Support Vets. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went out to uh, Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, um, did a well, they call it a speech. I don't do speeches. I just talk to people. Um, but we did that, and then. Uh, I'm actually going Wednesday to Blue Ridge Fest. We have a booth set up out there. And uh, I think the number four stage is the heart support stage. Mm. But um, what I like about what they're trying to do with the heart support vets is kind of is take what they're doing with heart support and take these these digital assets that they have and start pushing it through the veteran community because, you know, I mean, hell, we're the worst that everybody says, call your buddy. Like how many of us actually going to call somebody if we need help? Mm-hmm. Hardly any of us. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty cool, man. But yeah, uh, helicopters for heroes was, that's what I said. I would go back there a hundred times, dude. It was just yeah. amazing. I don't think many people would pass up, uh, flying around in little birds and shooting hogs. No, not in Texas. No. I've told Dan about it. I was like, we gotta, we gotta go the next time I do it. Cause I know our friend Emily, um, has been out there. Um, one of, she's one of the co-hosts of Fox news and then she's covered it quite a bit. And then we have another veteran, uh, Kevin Brewington, who's in our book, who is a double amputee. And he was out there flying around and doing the same thing. I don't know if he was there the same year as you. He might've been, I think I met him. I think I kind of, yeah, actually, and uh, I think about it, there's Josh Stein and Kevin Brewington, both lost their legs and they were out there, I believe the same time. Yeah. That's where I, it's actually where I met, uh, Steven, the writer and director of the movie I'm in. Mm. Yeah. Is this the, the horror horror movie? That's what I was just yeah. thinking. Yeah. So t- tell us a little bit about that. Cause I'm, I'm intrigued how that kind of got people started like horror like, movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, man, like, uh, so like I said, I was out of helicopters for heroes and, uh, 
we're out there. It was one of the days we're going to helicopters and I saw this guy and I'm like, I was looking at one of, one of my guys. I'm like, that dude looks so familiar, man. And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, nah, he looks familiar, dude. And I was like, I know him from somewhere. And then I walked up closer and I was like, holy shit. That's a dude off of white chicks. And, uh, <laughs> which so one? Start, uh, if you've ever seen the movie, you know, the little guy party boy that wakes up in bed with Terry Crews. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Screaming. That's him. <laughs> so that's funny. He was actually out there, uh, because, uh, his buddy at the time was uh, one of the board members for 22 kill. Hmm. And, and we just met, man, just kind of, you know, hit it off talking. And, uh, and I think what, uh, what blew his mind cause he had met all these different veterans and everything. And then he's talking to me and I didn't basically didn't tell him who I was, you know, but the, the guys that were with him was like, that dude's a command sergeant major, man. He's like, you know? And so anyway, he hit me up and was like, yeah, man, we got to keep in touch, you know, blah, blah. So I don't know, maybe six months, eight months later, I did uh, a honor flight with him out in DC. Um, it's some award two vets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then what well, he actually came to the uh, event that Jose Mangan put on for me because it's right there in California. And then like uh, two summers ago, he called me up. It was like midnight one night and he's like, Hey, I got this idea for a, uh, I'm writing this script and there's only one person I could think of to play this part. And that's you. And I was like, dude, I don't know how to act. He's like, I'm directing, you'll be fine. So anyway, he had this idea for a horror thriller about a native American curse up in Massachusetts. Mm. And, uh, he wrote me in as the hiker drifter slash killer that gets possessed by a demon. Uh, and mainly it was cause I'm really good at throwing tomahawks and all. So that's yeah. kind of where it came from, <laughs> but yeah, man, uh, it actually, uh, it, it actually premieres, uh, October 8th on video on demand and in theaters. Really? Uh, wow. And, uh, we're doing the actual, uh, premiere in Massachusetts on October 9th. Up near so, Salem. Yeah. Uh, Turner, Turner's falls. Okay. I don't know how far from Salem that is, but that's where they're doing it. What's I, it called? I mean, so people, it's people want to watch it. The Secret of Sinchane. It's S-I-N-C-H-A-N-E-E. It's about As a Native, Native American person. nation. <clears throat> and you get to see me shirtless, covered in blood with like black eyes. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> with but, the uh, beard and hair and the mohawk and everything? All the beard was crazy because they didn't want me to shave <laughs> anything. Uh, and then all the tattoos are covered up. And uh, Rudy Reyes and I, Rudy's in it. I know you guys know who Rudy Reyes is. Yep. Mm-hmm. But, uh, we do, we do, uh, I guess you could say like spiritual battle. He's like a shaman mm-hmm. and I'm the demon. So it's pretty, it came you out, know, it came out really cool, man. It looks really like it's going to be, I think people are going to dig it. That's awesome. It's such a random thing to hear. I was just thinking, you know, what movie I could see you in and it probably goes with, uh, some of just more of your, your fan for, or being a fan of like metals. I could almost see you like in a devil's rejects movie. Oh, yeah, I would do it. Well, there's a I've been offered another part in another movie that uh, should start filming. He said early next year. And yeah, I'll be a lead bank robber. So go. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess you're I making your way up. Man. But but, you know, like you look at, you know, everything that I've done, man, like I haven't, you know, since I've been retired and that's what I, I, I tell a lot of guys is I haven't 
went out looking for these things. You know, I've just, I've been myself and I've had these Mm -hmm. really cool opportunities and got to meet some really great people. And, um, and you know, and when you, and when you do, man, when you, when you meet people and you're just you, man, and they see that they see the transparency and all, Mm -hmm. you'll make like, you'll make friends that really actually appreciate you for who you are, not for Mm -hmm. what you've done or what you're doing. Like, I mean, hell dude, who'd have thunk, you know, an old retired command sergeant major would be a damn in a horror movie, killing people, you know, like it's, you know, you don't expect any of that stuff, but no, not at all. But to your point, it's like when you're authentic and you know, you're, you're just being yourself, it's very easy to make those relationships to like connect Mm -hmm. with people. And then it's just strange how it kind of happens. We talk about it all the time, especially with this book, how many people we've run into that know each other or like have crossed into each other or Mm -hmm. whatever the connections have been. It's been, it's been bizarre to make them to realize how small the world is. But I I think things like that just happen to really rise to the top when people are just, you're you're not out to get anything. You're just out there to just be yourself and connect with people and, and, you know, and see how you can help each other out. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, like, truthfully, man, if we could all, especially our community, if we could all just be, hey, dude, just be yourself, mm-hmm. you know, be transparent about a lot of the crap you deal with and and know that you're not going to be judged by anybody, then mm-hmm. we would be so much better off, man. And like, like, with that, you know, I figured out Instagram and all that crap, you know, an old dude. I mean, I'm not no Insta famous dude or nothing, but I got like 6,000 followers or whatever. And, and a lot of them hit me up all the time. And, uh, you know, and I see these other guys and people ask me if I follow them and all, and I don't, cause I see so many dudes on there trying to be like this badass persona and all that shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, just be you, man. Like yeah. all the crap we've done in our lives. If you got to sit there and, portray this character and act like this freaking dude then obviously you're not as bad as you thought you were from the start you know yeah i get it people got to make a living and crap but uh yeah man i mean i've met in the community especially in the insta famous community i've met some really good people but i've also met some turds i'll just say that Mm -hmm. that comes with it yeah you know and and it is what it is i get it man but you know what i what i'm what I'm trying to do, man, is at least what I'm doing when I talk to people or when I go to things is I'm trying to let these kids, for lack of a better term, know that, hey, dude, I deal with the same problems you guys do. You know, like just because I was the dude that looked like I had my shit together in the army, you know, the dude walking around that everybody don't want to talk to. I was probably worse off than a lot of these guys, you know, and. And, uh, and I got to do this on here because I do it on every podcast I'm on. I got to throw shade at my peers, man. Where are my peers talking to these guys about their issues and telling them, Hey dude, it's okay, man. Mm -hmm. Like when we were in, I'd have told you to suck it the fuck up. But now what I'll tell you is you gotta, you gotta figure out what's going on with you. You gotta face whatever it is. I can be there to help you all day long, but at the end of the day, if you're not going to sit there and face it, man, then I can't help you. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and dude, that was for me, one of the hardest things I ever did was facing those demons, man. Like, 
and I still face them every day. But mm-hmm. uh, but letting these kids know that, you know, we need we need dudes like me out there because, I mean, think about it, dude. Like, you know, when you're in combat, who's the guy you look up to? Even though you might think he's an asshole, but you know he's out there on the ground with you, and he's gonna freaking get you through it. Mm-hmm. But if, if he's the guy that's still out, that gets out and is my shit's all together, blah, blah, blah. And then you're going to be like, I guess I'm just all fucked up. Excuse my language. You know? And it's like, dude, no, we all are. Yeah. But that's yeah. okay. You know, like the crap that we've seen and the crap we've been through, we're never going to be the people we were before, but that's okay. Yeah. You know? But we can, we can live with it and we can thrive with it, not just live and not just survive but thrive man just be being yourself and being open man and that's that's one of the hardest things for me to understand like i said my first year out i was it was hard for me to be open about anything mm-hmm. uh, because i i still had that everybody looks up to me i gotta get my shit together blah 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 um so so i don't know how many sergeants majors are listening to this but if you are get off your ass and freaking let these guys know what you're going through because i know some of my buddies are going through it you know, mm-hmm. um, yep. and that, that also, pretty much go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and also all you see is officers out there, you know, like as far as like senior people go in the, um, in the Insta Instagram community and all that crap. It's like, dude, get out there. Cause you're the guys that these kids look up to and, mm-hmm. and they need us right now, man. But truthfully, dudes like me need them more than, than, uh, than they need me, you know? It's interesting you to say that. Cause I was, I was just about to say, you know, as we wrap up and I wanted to bring up this topic, but you already kind of nailed on it. Um, especially with the recent events, you know, we, we started with it. I kind of want to end on a shorter note for this podcast with you, but for the recent events happening in Afghanistan and now, you know, supposedly the war being over and veterans are going to soon be transitioning into the civilian world what would be your recommendation on, you know, just based on your lengthy military career and what you've had to go through, this is kind of the time that veterans need to come together and civilians need to come together to help support veterans as well. This is kind of that time frame where we can almost be the generation of Vietnam or you can be the generation of World War II that went out and changed their community. How can veterans start to focus on doing that and, and be better in their community? Well, I can tell you, uh, what none of us understand and i've i've spoke to people in dod and everything else about transition you know people talk about how the military should do a better job of transitioning guys and gals that sounds good in theory but truthfully there's no way to do that because at the end of the day the military is about readiness so if you're one of my guys and you're getting out i make sure you got your award i make sure you got your leave everything's good but once you're out then what am I focused on filling that slot? And that's just mm-hmm. the nature of the beast. Yeah. But what we can do is in a lot of, a lot of guys, especially, and I say guys and gals too, but I'm so used to being around dudes in the infantry is a lot of, for lack of a better term, man, a lot of veterans get out feeling uh, entitled. Mm-hmm. You know? Um. And the reason I say that is because they either saw it when they were young and then came in or when the war is raging, all these organizations throwing all this stuff at, and people are just thanking you for your service and all that stuff. And 
And, you know, you kind of have in your head when I get out, life's going to be easy. Everybody's going to appreciate everything I've done and all that stuff. And in reality, nobody owes you shit. Yeah. Um, you know, you signed up to do a job, you volunteered for it. The only person that truly owes you something is you. Yeah, so my advice, to, my advice to you as you're getting out is, and I had a Sergeant Major tell me this when I fought through my injuries, and he told me, and I never really understood it until like my last few months in the Army. He said, once you either are getting out or once you're retiring, there's only one person in the Army that gives a shit about you, and that's you. And he's like, if you can understand that, then you would take care of yourself for getting out and then, you know, doing what you have to do afterwards. But the thing about it is transitioning out, just remember, first off, the grass is always greener till you get out. You might not have somebody yelling at you, telling you what time to get up and all that stuff. But at the same time, you're going to miss that. Mm -hmm. But two, know that, like I said before, while you're in, everything you did was for everybody else. Regardless of how you think, every single thing that you did was for everybody else. Every second you breathe while you're in the military, you did for everybody else. Now that you're transitioning out, you have to take a step back and say, what am I doing for me? And and I know you got a family, you got all this, you got you to get a job, you got to do whatever. But you have to take a step back and say, I'm not going to have this anymore. So what am I going to do for me so I can move forward and be the guy or gal that I want to be? And if you can do that, then your loved ones and everybody around you will be so much better off. And oh, by the way, I tell people, you got to make it, you got to make a living, right? Mm -hmm. If you get a job and you're doing something you hate, do it until you can find something that you love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? and, uh, and, and, and the other thing, is, and I will say this too, before we get off, because I've had a lot of guys hit me up over the years too, that have never been to combat. They, they have just as many issues as we do. Mm. When you think about it, you know, um, a lot of them, it's guilt for getting out or, or this or that. But at the end of the day, man, what we did in the military was what we did. Now, what are we as human beings, as veterans, as Americans, what are we doing for us tomorrow, today and mm -hmm. tomorrow? Like, and if you can just look at it in terms of, I got to serve me for a little bit, you'll be okay. But at the same time, that's easy to say, but it's hard to do. Um, yeah. That makes sense, man. And then, uh, and the other thing uh, for kids getting out, like I said, the grass is always greener. You got all these, you know, all this stuff that you think people owe you or whatever. Set your conditions, just like when you're on patrol or anything else. You make sure you have systems in place to accomplish that mission or to be successful, right? So do the same thing now that you're getting out because mm -hmm. life is going to be harder. It is. It just is because, yeah, you don't have somebody yelling at you but you also don't have somebody yelling at you. So that makes it harder you yeah. know, to tell you what to wear, where to be, what to do. And uh, yeah, now, you know, just, just be, just 
be you to be happy and and do life for you man like because mm-hmm. the lives that we lead man we are so good we are such good advocates for everybody but ourselves mm-hmm. and uh and that was so hard for me to understand man like now i'm at a point in my life to where i'm not saying i'm happy every day i'm not saying i'm fixed but what i am saying is i'm in control like if i'm in a bad place i know it and i know how to remove myself from that i know how to because i'm self-aware so just think about all those things as you're transitioning out and it's a lot and and i'm telling you from an old dude you know i i'm not talking from a 20 something year old guy's perspective but i'm talking about from an old dude who did everything i did in the army like i can tell you this how many people actually gave a shit about what i did in the army if I talk to most civilians and tell them I was a command sergeant major in the 82nd Airborne Division, do you think they have a clue of what I did? No. No. Mm. So, yeah. So with that said, man, just got to do it for you. It's interesting to hear your perspective. I know people listening, you know, they hear this every week, but I think it's important that we hear every veteran's perspective on that topic. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really want to drill this into people's heads that it's kind of like, you know, every episode you want to listen to it and you want to hear more and more about transition because I know some people will hear it and it's still going to be difficult, but it's interesting to hear your perspective and maybe the things you've been through. Yeah, man, just, uh, you know, I could tell you soldier for life, have your, have your, uh, your resume ready and all this stuff, but all that's, that's the easy stuff. That's the stuff we're good at. We're good at doing Mm -hmm. a job. Like if we get a job, we're great at that. What we're not great at, I'd say we're terrible at, is understanding that we got to do something for ourselves now. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we, might, we might say we're doing it, but we're truly not. Like even me, when I got out of the army, you know, I want to do the nonprofit thing and all that stuff, but I was focusing on everybody else and not myself. Yeah, and, uh, and I wasn't being any good to anybody around me because I wasn't focusing on myself for a little bit. Like mm-hmm. my book, my buddy Rudy said. You have to be a little self-centered, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Well, I mean, it's like uh, when you're training like basic leadership principles, you have to lead yourself before you can be an effective leader for others. And yeah. uh, it's it's something that, you know, I hope a lot of people start picking that up from all these stories, like Bo was saying, of, mm-hmm. of transition, because everybody's transition is different. But I yeah. think the one thing that is that is common amongst all of them is that they, the individual had to take the initiative. The individual mm-hmm. had to do something to make it a positive transition or to, you know, recoup from maybe some missteps in the transition. And it was always the individual who had to make that change. Yeah. That's, that's what I've learned, man, is it had to be me. Like nobody could do it for me. And, uh, and if you can come to terms with that, then you can get through it, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Don, we can't thank you enough for taking the time tonight to be on the show. Um, I know we've kept in touch, obviously, with having you in the book, but we look forward to really keeping in touch with you going forward. And, and again, mm-hmm. can't thank you enough for sharing your words of wisdom and your thoughts on everything. No, man. Thank you guys, dude. Like like I said, man, I really appreciate you having me. And uh, anytime I get to talk, it's good for me because I just get to talk, man. And you know, it's, yeah. it's like talking to soldiers again. But uh, yeah, man, for you guys thank y'all for what you're doing. Like I said, the book is awesome. And, uh, and you know, there's so many kids out there that don't have a voice. They feel like, Mm -hmm. 
but when they do hear things like this and stuff like that, they knew they, they know they do have a voice. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. um, that's why I love the, I love the title. Never left behind, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know, you, you never leave anybody behind, but at the same time, you have to lead by example. So mm-hmm. that's another thing I would say too, is just like you said, brother Dan is uh, leading by example is kind of doing what I'm doing right now, what you guys are doing. Be yeah. open, be transparent, let people know the struggles you're facing because they may not have to go through those same struggles because they learn a little bit from you. you mm-hmm. know, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for everything done. And again, we look forward to keeping in touch with you. Uh, thank you guys, man. Thank you.